Isn't it a little bit unfair, don't you think, that the Apostle Thomas has come down to us through history with the name Doubting Thomas? Consider this reading for today that gives him his name. In the first part of the passage, the resurrected Jesus makes an appearance before his disciples, all except for Thomas, we're told. He stood in their presence and they spoke with him, saw his scarred hands and his side. He breathed. They received the Holy Spirit from him, John writes. And then we're told that they had power and authority to absolve sins on heaven's behalf. But Thomas, for some reason, had been absent from the party. No first-hand experience of Jesus just yet. No seeing with his own two eyes his scarred hands and his side. No spirit-infused breath with accompanying commission receive. No, Thomas was at something of a disadvantage, you might say, when he showed up later being the only one of the twelve that didn't share that experience. And so when they told him, we have seen the Lord, perhaps old Thomas deserves a little bit of slack for being the only disciple who, lacking their shared experience, replied with some further need of evidence. The evidence that he was asking for was the very evidence that all those other disciples had just seen for themselves, after all. And if there's any real doubt in this passage, as opposed to just curiosity and a desire to know more, then surely it's more about the sole sufficiency of believing the testimony of friends alone for something as spectacular as this. No, it may not be so clear after all that Thomas was all that extraordinary of a doubter, especially when compared to his companions who had all had such a different experience. What's more extraordinary and important about this passage, though, and I think relevant for us today, is what it says about the others more than what it says about Thomas. Verse 26 of today's reading is the one that I think should capture our attention. In the very next verse, following Thomas's avowal not to believe unless he sees for himself the scars in Jesus' hands and his side, in the very next verse, we're told a curious little fact. A full week later, it says, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. That's the sentence that introduces all that comes next. That's the sentence that forms the lead-in to where Thomas is able to have an experience of his own. An experience that you may well notice is not all that different from the one that the other disciples had just had before him. A week later. A full week later. Try to imagine with me this morning what that week must have been like. Twelve disciples living in the house, eleven of them 
having shared a powerful life-changing experience, the other left out. And not just left out, but, but wondering critically about its accuracy and its truth. What it, what might it have been like to live in a house like that? For many of us, that might not be too hard to imagine. It can be a challenging and painful sort of rift to live lovingly and gracefully together under such circumstances, under one roof. And if you have ever had such an experience, or if you are living such an experience like that today, you know quite well that the words of John the Gospel writer, here in alluding to a whole week later, conceals a bigger and much harder sort of story. And that, that is the very story that I want to zero in on today. Not the story of Thomas the Doubter, but the story of those apostles who bore with him and lived with him until he had had an experience of his own. Did you know that every single year, every single year, the gospel reading for the Sunday after Easter is this story about Thomas? Almost as if to remind us that Easter doesn't move in all of us in the very same pace. Some are still catching up. Some are still just hearing the news. Some haven't experienced it in the way that they need to just yet. The point, I believe, is that Thomas is normal. All too typical, even. And the question here is about the patience and the perseverance and the graciousness of the ones who have had this life-changing experience. And there are three things, three key things in particular that as I imagine that household of disciples in that week, that it would take for the rest of those 11 to live well and to live faithfully with their brother Thomas. And in so many situations, just like that. Three key ingredients of living that those disciples would have had to take on in order to maintain those tight bonds through the tension and hold a space for Thomas to be allowed to walk forward at his own pace. The first I want to call virtue. Virtue. Bearing with Thomas is inevitably going to be something that puts those other 11 disciples on the road to becoming more virtuous people. More Christ-like people. When I was a freshman in college, I was assigned to a dorm and to a roommate I had never met before, like so many other freshmen who head off to college. My attitude going into it was, how bad could it be? It's all part of the, this new adventure. My roommate's name was Chad, and Chad and I got along pretty well. As different as we were, we still had a few things in common, and Chad was a very friendly guy. He was a Jeep guy, and he loved to ride around campus with the doors off and the top down in that Jeep with those huge tires of his. In fact, he liked riding around that Jeep so much, and a lot more than he liked going to class. <laughs> 
And he also liked playing video games and sleeping in more than he liked going to class, which is why Chad wasn't around long enough to be my roommate the second year of college. Our dorm room was roughly a 12 foot by 12 foot square with two closets, two beds, two desks, two chests of drawers, and not much room for anything else. And it was such tight quarters, in fact, that that we had to exercise some of that college ingenuity to figure out how to make life work. And one of Chad's solutions was to use half of the hanging bar in his closet to store his pizza boxes. Hungry Howie's Pizza sold $5 pizzas on Tuesday, and as it turned out, you can fit three of those pizza boxes on the bar on top of the closet. The oldest pizza went on the bottom. That was mostly the eaten pizzas, really bread crusts at this point. It was essentially snack, uh, next day's snack. The next box up, interestingly enough though, because of its warmth, in theory, was the newest pizza. Because of its warmth, it would keep the box above it warmer and the breadsticks below it fresher. And the box on top was usually tomorrow morning's breakfast. And he got the super buttery, super garlicky crust that Hungry Howie's was so famous for. And I would sometimes find myself having to say to my brother Chad, Brother Chad, I think it's time to refresh your inventory. Here's a helpful solution. Why don't you and I go to the grocery store and take some fruit and vegetables in for a few days and see how we feel after that? Now, I had never lived with a roommate long-term before, but somehow I knew that throw those boxes away, Chad, was going to be a counterproductive approach. The very act of making the intentional choice to live with another person most times is a challenge of virtue. Since they will inevitably be different from us, the challenge becomes for us, am I willing to grow enough to make this work? Can I be patient with Chad's engineering solutions? Can I find the brilliance and even the humor in them, even, rather than just dwell on the fact that on some hot afternoons, I felt like I'm wiping garlic butter off my forehead. Can I be spiritually mature enough in my approach to living with another person and holding those spaces to lean into the call for me to grow? I have to imagine that that's what those 11 disciples were doing during that full week with Thomas. The first thing that bearing with Thomas calls forth from us all is virtue, I think. But the second, the second is gentleness and perseverance in communicating and in offering Thomas a hand. How many other conversations happened between Thomas and the remaining twelve in that week, do you think? There's a lot that we just don't know. But it would be hard to imagine that there were none. And what did those conversations look like? Were they debates? Arguments? Gentle offerings of experience? 
open-hearted sharings of what they saw, it matters, you know. Not all of those options hold the same kind of open space. In fact, some of those options polarize and make something holy into a contest of wits. One of the verses that came up in Thursday afternoon Bible study this week was Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's that seasoned with salt part that concerns us here in this point. How does our proximity to Thomas call us to grow in our speech and understanding? If we are to take this, take up this call of speaking, of keep continuing to offer, of keep on leaning and keeping on leaning in, but discover at the same time that there are limits to what we know how to say, then this verse would seem to apply. Keep on working at it. Keep on seasoning your speech with salt. I read somewhere recently that the best way to be an effective evangelist is simply to keep on learning, to keep on trying. There's no magic method, no magic words, because you can't argue anyone into faith. All you can do is hold the gentle and persistent space for Thomas to have his own experience. The third and final and perhaps most important things a disciple needs to live under one roof with Thomas and still be there at the end of the week are grace and hope. An optimistic prognosis and a gracious disposition to arrive at that future because after all, Thomas's day is coming. Thomas's day is coming. The worst part about remembering Thomas as doubting Thomas is that he's no longer doubting by the end of this passage. He has had the time he needs. He has finally gotten the proof that resolves most of his pressing questions. And the hidden victory here is that those other 11 disciples didn't sour him on the possibility before he had the chance to have it. That is a victory. And because they didn't, because they didn't, there's an opportunity for rejoicing together at the end of this story. People of God, on this first Sunday after Easter, may we learn the lessons of this story as we take the Easter gospel with us out into our worlds and even into our own homes. May the learnings of the eleven and ultimately of Thomas be our learnings as well. We lean into what being bearers of good news really calls forth from us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.